0: This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Every single thing that occurs, I want people to remember this is a business.
1: Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed.
0: Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Scott Soshnank. Duke. Everybody loves rooting against him, right? Evan Novi Williams.
1: Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier.
0: And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. The CEO of Oracle Mark Hurd. Jared Smith, President of Ticketmaster. Mindy race car driver Elio Castronevis. Bloomberg,
1: Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Scott Soshley. And I'm Evan Novi Williams. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports.
2: Michael Barr will be joining us later in the show, and that's when we speak with Mark Patrikov. He's the founder of Patrikov Co., which worked with a select group of athletes and sports professionals backed by J.P. Morgan Private Equity Group.
1: But before we bring in Michael and Mark, let's look at some of our top stories of the week, beginning, Scott, with a helmet maker that's running out of money. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised,
2: I Evan, if people have heard of Vices. Like they've gotten a lot of PR. It's a Seattle startup, uh, mostly because they've won some NFL competitions, have some backup uh, financial backing from the NFL, a lot of big name backers: Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, Jerry Rice, Roger Staubach. It was Mahomes, sort of like the, the, yeah the, the the safest helmet in the NFL. It always had the highest ratings. There's only one problem though, Evan, with this product. It doesn't seem to make any money. Uh, yeah. And the company is literally running out of money.
1: It's uh, the, My takeaway here, they're selling helmets for $1,500. Uh, every science seems to, to point to this being the safest helmet out there, right? And as we've talked about before, helmets don't prevent concussions. They really help you from getting your skull fractured. Um, but- you know it's not a huge market. the market out there for a $1500 helmet that is safer than the other one is not a huge market, and we've seen yeah, and the point
2: is no, no high school, no high school out there is going to order exactly 60, $1500 helmets. I mean, and- that's the market you need to capture, the youth football, the high schools. I mean, it's nice to be the guys in the NFL. But unless that translates into sales, what good is it?
1: And participation youth football-wise across the country is going down, which obviously is not helping this. Um, but yes, uh, struggles for vices right now, which I, as of a year ago was, was a high riser in, in this world. And the numbers
2: like, you know, at the high levels, like 180 college programs are using VISIS. That's up from 125. They Previously, they've raised more than $85 million. However, now they're trying to raise more money, but the valuation of the company is $5 million previously they were raising money at a $90 million valuation. Yeah, that's a lower number.
1: (laughs) Five million, a lot lower than
2: 90. Five less than 90. I mean, you really wonder, does it survive?
1: We'll see if the demand for that picks up. But speaking of something that is in high demand, uh, let's go out to the Olympics, 2020 Olympics in Tokyo next year. Uh, And the ticket demand that they're seeing over there uh, is pretty staggering.
2: I got to say, uh, that was some uh, exemplary uh, segue by you. Thank you, thank you. Normally, I try and play the role of Segway, but you did a very good job there. Yeah, I mean, think about some of the numbers here. So they're selling these in, in like, different times. So you get a chance at some tickets four or five times moving up. Yeah, they're lotteries as you go forward. So they made one million tickets available in the latest lottery. You know how many people requested tickets?
1: I'm going to guess more than a million.
2: Oh, yeah, 23 million. So just (laughs) like you said before, 23 million more than one million and you got to really understand some of the anger from the local residents because billions of dollars of taxpayer money in Japan went to these Olympics. And now a lot of folks are being are being told that they can't have access to tickets. That yeah, does not. Sit yeah, well it's right kind now. of a
1: perfect storm here for Tokyo. You know, the last four Olympics like right, Sochi 2014, you know, had all these development and also geopolitical problems. Rio in 2016, there was Zika concerns. People didn't want to go. Two years ago, Pyeongchang, the Winter Olympics, obviously some geopolitical concerns there too. You know, it's been a number of Olympics before I think a lot of big fans were willing to go. And now you have the summer games in a very populous city, you know, and a lot of these sports are, are have like big cult- cultural touchstones in Japan. Um, and I think it's all coming together to, to, to make this crazy increase. And don't forget, you know, the last two Olympics, the one in Rio and the one in South Korea, they were giving out tickets for free yeah, the to volunteer was
2: always like, uh Oh, nobody wants, there's no demand.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So it'll, it'll be a little different uh, next summer uh, as people are sweating in, in Tokyo. Let's move on. Scott, a topic you guys discussed earlier this week, Tom Coughlin was fired uh, from the front office of Jacksonville. Uh, this comes kind of right on the heels of the NFLPA essentially reprimanding him and the entire organization uh, for, for the way they were treating their players.
2: Hey, you're the Jaguars fan. You tell me about, you know, what what do Jaguars fans think about this?
1: I mean, it seems I would think that any time the NFLPA is openly telling players uh, you should consider all of this before you were to sign in Jacksonville, um, I would think that's a that's a red flag for any owner. And it seems like Shad Khan had been thinking about moving on from Tom for a while, and and, and decided that this was uh, the final straw. I do wonder how different this would be if the if the Jaguars were were, were twelve and two or whatever. Oh. Um, well, well, Quite but winning I think, solves
2: all ill. Of but course. here's my question to you, Evan. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing that popped up when he was with the Giants. Remember, remember the thing with Coughlin where, like, if you're five minutes early, you're still late for the meeting? Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't know if that plays with pro athletes these days. That, that's sort of me treating them like children. If you have a noon meeting and I show up at 11.59, I'm on time. Only in Tom Coughlin land, you're late. I'm
1: late.
2: It's like the kind of thing my father used to try. You know, My father, who, who was in the Army, set the, set the watch 10 minutes early so you're never late. But like, these are professional men making millions of dollars. It just seems they're being treated like amateurs.
1: I would imagine this is the end of, of Tom Coughlin in the NFL. You know, A guy who won Super Bowls with the Giants and was also the first coach in Jaguars history. Um, but yes, I, no, I agree with you for sure.
2: I don't have to say the enduring image, I would say is probably his chapped, Vaseline-filled face in Green
1: Bay. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's get to this week's interview with Mark Patrikov, founder of Patrikov Co., which works with a select group of athletes and sports professionals backed by J.P. Morgan Private Equity Group. Mark, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. And you know what this is like because you, too, have a podcast how hard is it to be the host of one of these things? You tell the listeners, from our perspective, how hard it is to do it. Hard.
3: Hard enough where I'd prefer to be on this side of the conversation than on my own. And it depends, I guess, on how much prep you do. So I have tried, as best I can, to have good questions written out before I interview somebody. But as for us, it's really just kind of a four-wall thing for our clients. So I don't have the pressure that you have of sharing with many thousands of people.
2: Now, you're the founder of Patrick Hoff Co., uh, also known as PCO. Uh, what exactly do you do, and who are you doing it with? Thanks.
3: Well, I appreciate the chance to tee up and explain it. It doesn't exist elsewhere as far as I know, but if you think about the uh, world of representation of professional athletes and what agents do and how you perceive their role, marketing people and wealth advisors, we fill a lane that's in between those. So for a professional athlete who has a net worth of you know substanti- substanti- some substantial amount, they are not getting advice typically on their private deals, their alternatives. Their agents advising them on their contract, their marketing agents advising them on their marketing deals, and their wealth advisors typically mining the cash carefully, hopefully, uh, watching it and putting it into liquid things. We focus on the alternatives, real estate, and most importantly for us, private equity, growth equity, places where these athletes can put their money to work in a smart way and see a good return, recycle their cash, and continue to grow their net worth. Now, the
2: stereotype, as you know, is that these athletes go broke. Mm -hmm. And 30 for 30 did one of those. I think the numbers that were in that Sports Illustrated article are total bunk. They were based on nothing and i tried to tell them that it's but about it didn't five work bad
3: out. stories you know it's great when clinton portis gets ripped off and pulls out a gun and goes chases down his fa but the reality is there are a lot of smart athletes and by the way there are a lot of smart investment bankers a lot of less smart investment bankers same yeah. thing with athletes i've had such a great time meeting with athlete after athlete who's got a you know thoughtful approach and understand that their capital probably has some more leverage than others you know and, and therefore they should be strategic about what they do and not reactive and for us it's all about finding the clients that want to be proactive versus reactive. We spend a lot of time working with our athletes, teaching them how valuable they are in their local markets and how they should get to know their owners and their season ticket holders and what industries are unique to wherever they're playing or where they went to college and try to have a strategy around how to deploy their capital. Meanwhile, any person with a meaningful net worth should be putting 10 to 20% of that capital into alternatives, but just do it
2: wisely. And in the media business, we say, and you know plenty about the media business, we say we don't write stories about the planes that land safely. <laughs> it's remarkable, but we don't write those stories. We do hear about the crashes. That's what we hear about athletes as well.
3: Yeah, it's a shame. I think ESPN, Sports Illustrated, all, all those publications and, and media outlets that sort of dumped on athletes for not being smart really did them a disservice.
1: Mark, can you, I don't, can you name any of your clients? Is that, is that something you can do?
3: Sure. I mean, you know, we we actually, of course, don't send out lists around. But if you think about for us, uh, we it, more, I will answer the question. But yeah. more importantly, we've been very selective. So we have 55 um, athletes now sort of on our deal sharing platform as, as functioning as clients. And we do a whole series of things for them. We do board placement. We do advisory work for their inbound deals. We do a lot of, as I said, podcasts around you know, helping them understand different ways to take advantage of who they are. But the focus for us are athletes with great character, uh, have made a meaningful amount of money, relevant to consumer brands, because primarily you know, we focus on late-stage growth equity, private equity deals. So our athletes range from Venus Williams to J.J. Watt to Dwayne Wade to Todd Gurley, CC Sabathia, Henrik Lundqvist, et cetera. Um that's, that's a good smattering of names. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes very deep. Obviously, for us, it's not just about the biggest names. It's also about the really thoughtful People want to be great investors. I mean, Brent Selleck, who just retired from hmm. the Eagles, or Cliff sure. Avril, who just retired from the uh, from the Hawks, Seahawks. And it's not always about, for us, who has the most money. It's really who, who's going to make an impact with, with their money. And uh, names matter, but that's not the only thing. And the majority of our guys are not retired, though.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I find that, you know, publicly... NBA players seem to be the ones that get the most attention for their interest in tech, et cetera. But it certainly sounds like you're not heavily NBA. That you have kind of a nice balance. I mean, look, we are we are we
3: are weighted more towards the NBA and the NFL. Of the 55 athletes, I think about 30 come from those two sports. Mm. But we've got baseball, hockey, tennis, uh, soccer. Uh, and for us, it's also really important uh, to have a good spread because we're looking at different types of companies. Sure. Yeah. And while we're not guaranteeing these companies any relationship with their investors, the whole thesis behind our business was you're going to lean much harder into a company in which you've invested than a company that's maybe paid you $50,000 for a couple of appearances.
0: There are many successful former athletes who have gone on and invested properly. And then you find the the five stories, whatever, you know, like you said, of Clinton borders and this and that, whatever. And I'm speaking as an African American, it it kind of ticked me off because there are a lot of athletes out there who are doing it the right way or at least trying to set themselves up for their future. And I'm so glad you guys brought that up. I also think that this notion of bartering equity for services, a lot of nonsense out there. If you want to make
3: money in life, you really have to double down and invest your money. And why not give these athletes the same respect you would give to any other investor that their money has value and they are smart? astute investors and can learn how to put their mind to work. I got into this because I co-hosted a television show with Rob Gronkowski for two years on Verizon Go 90 that nobody saw. It would be like a sleep app. Myself. It would be better you know, better than Ambient. But I did meet, we had uh, about four or five athletes on each episode and I would help them negotiate. We had everybody from Kevin Durant to, to Todd Gurley to Marshall Falk to Calais Campbell, Jay, anyway, long list of P.K. Subban. And I realized, Antonio Brown, by the way, who I thought was actually hmm quite bright. Um, I realized over the two years that we shot this show that there are a lot of really smart guys who just don't have the right people around them giving them advice. It's not that they're, they're not trusting the right people. They just don't have access to the right people. So that's why we created the business, sort of in this empty lane.
1: Mark, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on what Spencer Dinwiddie... Tried to do, thought about doing this year, You know, had a three-year, $34 million contract with the Brooklyn Nets, decided he wanted to securitize it and try to essentially make money up front by selling access to it, essentially like bonds or, or, or stocks. Uh, is that a good idea? It, it seems like the NBA wasn't fully comfortable with it, but is, is that a future possible model for athletes getting capital up front?
3: a Couple of ways of answering that. I mean, it's clever. I mean, David yeah. Bowie did it with the Bowie bonds. You know, sure. I, I, uh, I, when I was doing my investment banking work, I did royalty securitizations all the time for Garth Brooks and mm. Courtney Love, et cetera, Eminem. You know, I, I guess the question is why. I, I, I've never really understood, for the most part, why these kids and their kids, in many cases, I mean, Spencer's under 30, sure. uh, why they need that money up front. And if, you, if the concern is that they're not going to have you know, longevity in terms of their earning. I think the spreading out of payments, especially when there's guaranteed contracts, to me is much much more logical. I've probably met with five companies at least that are doing this right now. Sure, uh, I'm sure I'm sure there's a reason for somebody. But even the houses these guys are buying, because the interest rates are low. I mean, you know, if you look at it, I just don't know that there's an argument to front load your income when you are earning only for about 10 years in your life. Uh, it, it, it strikes me as, a, as an alarming um, strategic decision, unless there's a good reason behind it that I don't know. I don't I think, know why Spencer wanted I to do it. I think his
1: argument was that if he had access to that money right now, he could start investing it two or three years before he would have if he had played out the rest of his deal, sure. and therefore turn that $34 million Ideally, into something more in than theory, if he can
3: do it, that, yeah. great. I mean, it's like I say to some people, you're better off renting a house sometimes than buying because if you can do more with your money than you know, t- than tying it up in a purchase in of a home, then you should not you should rent. But everybody's different, hmm. uh, so I don't have a great answer for you because I don't, I don't know, actually don't know Spencer, yeah. Um, but it's not something I think
0: is necessarily Get what I'd be advising off. people to do. No, Mark, let's take for instance the three of us here, Scott, myself. Evan, I don't think I don't think we meet his minimum uh, take, well, take let's let's pretend we're on the curling team. We're okay. the best successful <laughs> curling team and, and I'm talking ice, not not with hair. That that is out there and uh we want to come to you and we want to get your advice. What is the first thing you would tell us? Well, for me it's really about
3: allocation. So the first thing always is a combination of number one liquidity. We have a opportunity to take on, we had an opportunity to take on one of the top five wide receivers in the NFL. He's made a ton of money. He has no liquidity. He has, mm. he has put his money in all the wrong places. He spends what, too much money. What's he
2: tied up in? Just for, for mistakes, what's he tied up he in? He spends so, cash. He just spends oh, he cash, just cash spent in, in the wrong cash. ways.
3: Okay. No. So so first of all, do you have enough money, liquid, to make a rational decision around how to deploy your capital? Or are you already underwater? Assuming the, assuming the former, that you have enough money, it's all about allocation. So we look at, as I said earlier, um, whether it's you or me, and whether you've got a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, you should be putting 10 to 20% of your net worth into alternatives, because otherwise it's very hard to meaningfully grow your net worth. Right. So that's the first thing we do, is you take a pie chart, the same way you would if you're a financial advisor and you look at you know the balance between stocks and bonds and cash and so forth. We do the same thing in alternatives. Where should money go into real estate? Some VC, for us, we really focus on PE and growth equity. We won't won't look at VC. We'll advise advise the players on their venture capital kind of inbound deals, but we don't source them. We're just sourcing later stage deals where we think you're gonna simply and predictably see a two to four X return on each investment. And then as you grow your net worth, so really it's more of a sustainable long-term strategy for us that's really important. The other thing I'd say to you is, I just had lunch with a former New York giant who now works at Goldman Sachs. And we were talking about the notion of of post playing career, and I kept I kept asking. We finally got to sort of a better place in the conversation. But why aren't more players looking for jobs after they play? I mean, it's a second career. We've all had multiple careers, at least many people have. Uh, I think it's really a missing component to the earning strategy for these athletes. So we ask them a lot about what their longer term interests are, and if you hear real estate, or you hear you know, you know broadcasting, and you kind of know. Their their mind might not be as focused on a long term
0: build around wealth creation. Yeah, keep in mind that when these re- athletes, men and women, retire, they're still relatively young compared to the rest of the world. Well, yeah, young, that's why a, now, yeah, yeah, quite a horizon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who is the
2: who's the model? And I, and I will tell you some of the things you said. By the way, I always go back to Grant Hill. For me, uh-huh. Grant told me years ago when he used to go on the road rather than just sleep in the hotel or whatever it is, he would take the time to meet with the opposing team's owner. Figuring that might... I mean, while he was in the NBA, he had that platform, he had that notoriety. Maybe that's somebody I could do business with in the future.
3: Well, I'm going to give you two examples and I'll back into the answer. So we do a couple things for our... We do a bunch of things for our our clients, one of which is we have a, a road trip guide. So... For every one of our, right now, in-season NHL and NBA players, clients, we have a customized book of every road trip um, they take and a recommendation of who to meet in those cities. That's fantastic. Ranging mm-hmm. from funds to local companies to industry leaders to potentially politicians, team owners, and we had the date listed when they're going to be in that city, and we set up those meetings in advance. And that's gone really, really well. And I can tell which of the players take advantage of that.
1: It's a great idea. The other thing we
3: do is, on a monthly basis, we host one of our clients uh, for a private networking event. It's always done at Li on 55th Street. We'll plug the Chinese restaurant. One of my favorites. And uh, and <laughs> it's done from 12.30 to 2. We keep it very tight, and we have partners showing up from Silver Lake and KKR and TPG and Carlisle and Crestview. I mean, it's unbelievable the turnout we get. We've done, we've done them for Todd Gurley and Victor Oladipo, and we're doing Henrik Lundqvist next month. And,
2: How many of those folks are just fanboys and want a picture and an autograph? It
3: doesn't matter, because the reality is these are really smart, successful people, and we choose the right people to come and have those lunches. And believe me when I tell you, Victor Oladipo, who is a kid from Indiana, yeah. is actually, maybe uh, from Washington, but anyway. He plays for Indiana. He went to IU and he plays for the Pacers. He is so smart and so thoughtful. He sat there, he asked every single one of those pe- people the right question, at the end of the lunch, they give them his business, they exchange business cards, we connect them. And now Victor has 15 relationships in the private equity world that very few other players have made the effort to go out and and get for him or herself. And he's done a great job in following up with those. Another situation was, you know, Venus Williams and I were talking about, you know, how to further her career and her sister's kind of going down the venture capital route. I was sort of discussing and, and kind of advising her around private equity, ended up getting her on the board of a Carlisle company. Now she sits on the board of one of Carlisle's top portfolio companies. She's getting paid a lot of money to do it. She's learning a ton and adding a lot of value. So, so there are all kinds of examples of athletes who are smart and doing it the right way. Grant Hill may have been one of the early ones, yeah. but there are many now. now
2: she, and by the way, Grant's mother at the time, Janet Hill, and I'm not sure if she still is, but she was on the board at Carlisle as well. Mm-hmm. So, it took time to really get those relationships. At the She's on the board of
3: Venus on the board of a Carlisle portfolio. Right, 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 right. Own, yeah.
2: And Dan, do you do? We
3: did that placement. Do you
2: do the homework for them? I don't know if these athletes have that much time to. Like, is this where I should be? How much do they rely on
3: you to say this is a good place for you and here's why? Well, the goal is to be their first phone call every day. And we're the only advisor in their lives who they're not paying up front. So we only get paid on the back end. So we get paid with them. So we have a fund.
2: You can, can you it how, how do you get paid? Right. That's So we, great we
3: raised uh, a significant growth equity fund from J.P. Morgan's private equity group. So we co-invest with them, as do I personally. So we're never recommending a deal to our clients. That you're not in. I'm not coming in personally our fund isn't going in. So we've made five investments. We invest in Cholula hot sauce. Top Golf, the Real Real, which went public about three months after we invested, um, a company called Acuity Eyewear, and then we just recently invested in a company called Orgain, which is a protein powder company. And you know, each of those investments, um, we advise our clients uh, on, the, on the on the opportunity. They make their own decision, so we're really empowering them to make their own decision. We're not investing their capital for them; they're investing their own capital.
2: What are their expectations? Uh, athletes are aggressive by nature. I think most, many of them, or I would say more than a majority of them. Um, do they – are they satisfied with 6%, 8% or are they looking like the good old days? No, I, w- I want 20% on my re- of return.
3: I, I think the reality is a great question. I think we have to do uh, – we have to do a lot of work in making sure they understand that these are not – you know. 20x opportunities, but they're also not going to zero out. So the, da- the downside here is a 1x. That's kind of how we position it. So for the athlete who looks at some of those stories, and I'm not, this is not about slamming anybody else, but there are plenty of examples of of these, especially NBA guys who think they're going to be big tech investors, <laughs> and they put a lot of money into a lot of early stage deals, and they don't realize that you're not going to know for 10 years how those deals are going to turn out. We're looking for kind of three to five year exits, double, triple your money, recycle your capital, grow your net worth. So for us, the people that have been attracted to our platform understand that. The ones who don't may not naturally default to what we're doing. We will at some point have to have some kind of a solution for venture capital just because they like it and, and they should be in it. If you have that pie chart again, if, if you know, 80% is going to growth equity or if 70% is going to growth equity and 20% to real estate and 10% to venture, we want to be able to check all, all the boxes. So we can do that now from an advisory standpoint. We evaluate every single inbound deal our clients get, but we won't source VC deals for them.
2: Now if that sounds familiar, for your father, is Alan Patricof considered, you know, one of the Godfathers of venture capital, but you're going more the private equity. Yeah, I mean, just just what, just
3: because. What, yeah. So
2: tell me, what what was the uh, the conversation like at the dinner table at the Patricof
3: family when you were growing up? We've had a really good relationship because we don't talk about business. We've kind really? of really yeah yeah. It's just been it's, been it's just been our way. Is he a sports fan? No, not at all.
2: Okay. Well, wow.
3: I think the only time he and I ever went to a game together, he read the newspaper during. <laughs> <laughs> what game was it? But look, uh, it was the Yankee. But but you know, v- venture capital obviously has done well for him and many other people. <clears throat> but it's it's a very specific. It's a science uh, in some respects, but it's really an art. Private equity is still an art, but it's more of a science. And I'm I'm more of a science person than an art person in that regard. I, I, I sort of like to know what I'm what I'm what, you know what I'm getting into. The instinct piece of it's great we have sort of 15, 20 private equity funds that I advised many times when I was investment banking in that life and doing buy-side work, which I was willing to do. A lot of bankers didn't. And I built that relationship up very carefully with those funds, and those are the ones we're sort of following and indexing for our clients. It's a different strategy.
0: People forget that the athlete that you see on TV is totally different than the athlete that is... Really real-life uh, investing. And I think of uh, Indomicon Sue when he was playing for the Lions. And I'm looking at the Thanksgiving game, and he's stomping on a Green Bay Packer. And it's like, Indomicon, we're on national TV. Then we had a chance to talk with him and click. I mean, I, it, it blew me away. Uh, how he had the mind for investing, how he knew where to put his money, uh, and I learned a lot. From I, I, from know, he's, I to know he's. I know
2: he's in your rolodex. And he's a, a good friend down. of mine. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: He's. Uh, you know,
3: but but to his credit, he went to Nebraska and he found a mentor yeah. <laughs> by the <a> <laughs> mentor <laughs> we would all like to <laughs> have. Yeah. And he and unlike a lot of athletes, he actually listens really well. He and told us
1: the story of his freshman year, I think, when yeah. Warren Buffett was doing the ceremonial coin toss, and he was the only one he of said his, Here's my opportunity. He the only one of his yeah. teammates who like actually stayed around and chatted with Warren, and I believe that was the the birth of their friendship.
3: Yep, he's had great business advice. He should have better, um, you know, P- PR advice. He's a really good guy. <laughs> he's incredibly smart thoughtful, and thoughtful, and just a nice person. And, and uh, you know, he has this affect that 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 came in part from Thanksgiving, but you know, it was a great television commercial with. Sue and uh, and Marcus Cousins, when they're sort of stepping on somebody in the locker room. <laughs> <an> <laughs> each, never, it's a great commercial. And I called him, I said, I think that's a good thing for you but it, but because you're laughing yourself, which is nice, but he's a terrific guy.
1: Mark, you've done a number of, advised on a number of media deals as well, one of which the the $135 million deal uh, when Univision bought Gawker Media. We've talked a lot in the past uh, couple months about what happened to Deadspin, uh, a former uh, Gawker Media product. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what, what happened there, and what that might say about kind of sports media writ large?
3: It's kind of like kicking a corpse, though. I mean, the reality was it probably it was it was uh, you know as an investment banker, I'm going to get the answer, but I did a lot of really hard work and good work on deals that didn't end up well, and I did you know I did fine work on deals that hit it out of the park, and sometimes you do a great deal, you know, great job and get a great outcome. That 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 asset was such a mess. Mm-hmm. That what was paid, you know, what, what Univision paid for, it didn't really reflect the actual value of the asset. It was more the demand that the you know that the market had had, had had for the deal and the auction process. I think there's plenty of opportunity for interesting media properties to succeed if they're good. I mean, look, mm-hmm. look at look at what Barstool's doing now. I mean, I, I think that's a great you know it's a great story. I mean, Pierre Chernen going to do incredibly well with that. Um, could that have been deadspin? Sure. I mean, is is you know Bleacher Report? I I don't I don't I don't know. Whether there will ever be a way of really—it goes back to the art versus science—a way of clearly defining what's going to work or what's not going to work. It's what the public likes, and if they gravitate towards it and they you know leverage technology properly, then there's real value. Destro sure. just didn't do that. It was early, though.
1: Yeah, and people have different definitions of what's working and what isn't. Absolutely right? is It's a company that is profitable but not really Turning off all that money. Is that working or, you know, is it, it doesn't do a you don't have to s-
3: Everything doesn't have to sell. Exactly. You know, that's the yeah. mistake in the last 20 years in the, in, the, in the media industry is that the sole definition of success is whether or not something has an, out, an exit or an mm-hmm. outcome. <laughs> How many family-owned media companies were there for the last 100 years that never in a million years would have thought of selling? I don't, you know, look at this company. I don't think Mike's selling this company. You know,
0: don't don't sell, please.
3: <laughs> yeah. Is content still Free snacks, king? snacks. No more. you got that right. Is content still king? Sure. I mean, I don't. I don't. I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here if we weren't make, making content. We're discussing content. Sports is content. I mean, it's uh, it's got more mind share than ever. I think. You know what? I think the customer, the consumer, has to start to figure out is what they should be paying for and what should be free. I mean, someone's gonna catch on. I was on. But Bloomberg. Ki-
2: let me ask. Do the let me. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off there. No, but no.
3: Do, do the kids
2: younger than Eben? And yeah, that that they do exist. There are some of them out there. I don't think they want to pay for anything.
3: I mean, other than their Netflix subscription, I agree. But what's interesting is right now they're paying for Netflix and Hulu, and they're, you know, they're paying for cable television, and they have other Spotify, and you know, so forth. Someone's going to catch on. I was on Bloomberg Television maybe a year ago, and I said, you know, Netflix worries me as as a stock, just because if Amazon really wants to win in, in in streaming, they will. You you just don't. I don't know why you would ever want to fight with Amazon. And the global story is nice, but the fact is, if you add up all the amount of money you're spending on a monthly basis, most of us would be pretty surprised and upset to see how many different subscriptions we're paying for. So at some point, this notion of pull versus push will all be pull.
2: Was I smart to just stick with the cable bundle? Is that still a, is that a good value? <laughs> well, it depends. It
3: depends how much you like watching Orange Is the New Black or The Crown. I guess.
2: Oh, now you're bringing my wife into it. This screws up every financial equation I've I ever mean, done. I mean, if
3: you're going to pay 150, you know, to watch The Crown, then go go at it. But oh. uh, but you know, but the, you know, I, I I think HBO actually. We were joking before about Succession. I think HBO may still have it right, which is more money spent on fewer things and making them better yeah uh, the the glut of mediocre content i think is going to backfire i mean the cream rises it always has and my guess is now with Netflix spending whatever billion dollars, billions of dollars every year and Hulu doing this, and Amazon doing that, there's just so much. You I mean, can't they're fighting maintain, for friends. They're fighting for You can't for maintain friends. the quality. So, if Netflix, so if HBO says, look, we're going to do five shows a year, but it's going to be Succession and Watchmen and Curb, whatever it is. And they're going to be really good and we're going to spend money on them. And make sure they, you know, they generate, you know, find the right audience and they're going to be successes for a long period of time. And so you talked about sports as content and now you're talking, you mentioned
2: Amazon, Uh, NFL is still the behemoth. Are the fangs going to jump in in any real way and be serious bidders against the established networks? For Ooh, sports sorry, properties, the Fang. Uh, of oh, yeah, yeah. um, right. Am I going to see Amazon with a real football property I, I guess or something? So. Of
3: I guess so. It seems that way. I mean, if you know, I read the same things you do. My, my my guess is you will. I mean, it's 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 more more of a distraction to me than anything else. Like at the end of the day, the consumer doesn't care what they're wa- where they're watching anything. They're going to watch the NFL as long as the NFL is compelling. So, you know, I, I guess they think that, first of all, these companies have too much cash. I mean, if you think about how much cash Amazon has just sitting there on the they balance They do something, sheet, right? Yeah, they, they, it's something to do. There are, isn't that much you can buy that costs that much. It's like, why do people buy ridiculously expensive watches? Well, they're so wealthy. They're, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to buy a $5,000 watch or a $30,000. It makes no difference to them. So for Amazon, at the end of the day, if, that, if, that, if that's for them a win, they'll pay up no other thing I, I'm, grab, I I'm, gra- I'm grabbing i'm grabbing bars wrist as nothing wear a watch. Yeah, I, I don't know what time it is What kind no a kind of watch man? What are you got like, a watch person I, I,
0: I well you know what i used to be a watch person I love my watch. and then my phone had the time and it's like well now i can bring the time up but hey, a I watch, have, uh, a watch isn't a timepiece; it's a fashion statement. Yeah, but, but, but you, have you seen my? No, fashion? that's Oh <laughs> <well>, yes, <laughs> but that's why I don't
3: have an Apple. I had my Apple Watch for like a day, and I thought this is ridiculous. It's I have my phone in my pocket, so yeah. why would I need the watch? What but are you sporting? What are you sporting more? Today I've got a Rolex, but oh. I usually wear my Panerai. But I just sent it in to get it repaired, and it said it's me a thousand dollars to repair it. And oh boy! One,
0: that really annoyed me, wow. so I uh, I had it sent back, and I'm going to think about it. That's why. See, that's why I own a Timex. I don't wear it. Takes the licking, baby. <laughs> I'm saying. <laughs> Mark Patrickoff, founder of Patrickoff Co. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming in and talking with us. And I uh, hope you had uh, a lot of fun uh, with us, with this gang here. I did. I'm uh, glad to be here, and I hope I get to come back.
2: All right, Edmund, it's just going to be you and me for this part. Mr. Barr has taken ill, so the takeaways of this interview fall to us. For me, I love the fact that the stereotype – of the broke athlete who invests in nothing but silly things like restaurants that go bust and and sports theme this and that, That that is just a time of the past. Athletes today are quite sophisticated. It'd be great if that whole stereotype of the dumb moron, just flush all the money away, athlete goes away. And with more things like Mark Patrickoff and some of the other investors that were here, like, you know, Kevin Durant and Kobe Bryant are in so many things. Perhaps... They'll get their due.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mark is helping with that. My takeaway: I, I love the idea of those binders that he's creating for his clients. Right when when they go on the road, if they're visiting a city, let's say they're in Dallas, you know, it's a list of all the big business contacts, maybe some companies in Dallas that they can they can meet with when when they uh, when they're in town. Uh, and and you mentioned that story about Grant Hill, who was kind of doing this on his own ahead of the curve. Um, but it's clear that there are people out there helping athletes and athletes themselves who are more. more Motivated to do that. And I think that's a very smart way of doing that. You know, the athletes today, their their schedules are insane. It's not easy to find time to meet with people, especially if you're in a different city. Uh, doing it as you're traveling, if you can squeeze that in, I think is a very smart way to do that.
0: My goal is if you don't want to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of some kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I'll wear the number because of mike my... we have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first start wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg, business of sports, the number of the Week. And now, Scott, let's
1: squeeze in the number of the week. Uh, Bar's is not here. Fell on me today. Your number of the week is 21.8 million.
2: Oh, you and the points, the decimal points. And sometimes Barr and I discuss this. We have not discussed it. <laughs> 21.8 million. Million. We already talked Olympic tickets. Uh, I have no idea.
1: So, according to Riot Games, that is the average minute oh, audience you e-sports? of you the, e-sports of on the me? League of Legends <laughs> World Championships uh, from November, uh, which is a that's kind of the closest metric esports has to traditional TV ratings. And and twenty one point eight million as an average uh, is a, is a pretty darn good average. Yeah, I mean,
2: as we've talked about forever, just get me the eyeballs, and I'll figure out how to monetize it. That the famous John Skipper quote. Those are some decent eyeballs right there.
1: Yeah, for reference, the NBA Finals this year, you know, the Raptors, th- their victory averaged 20.5 million, th- all those games. In
2: fairness, though, Canada and Toronto would not count for, in sure. the U.S. rating. Yeah, but that okay.
1: rating was already up. Anyway, it's okay. It, this League of Legends Championship is doing roughly what an NBA Finals game does uh, for folks out there who are trying to contextualize esports. That would be me. Thank you. <laughs> you have been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Evan Novi williams on Twitter at Novi_Williams. underscore Williams.
2: Happy birthday, Novi williams 32 this week. I am Scott Soschnick, slightly larger and older than 32. You can follow me at Soschnick. And our co-host, Michael Barr, absent this week. You can find him on Twitter at Big Bar Sports thank you very much for joining us. Please tune in next week when we once again speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.